0: Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast episode you'll be listening to today is entitled Obedience and Agency, originally produced and published by Dan Wotherspoon of the Mormon Matters Podcast. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the newest edition of the Mormon Matters podcast. I'm your host, Dan Weatherspoon, and I have a call full of FIFEs. I'm excited to have Jennifer Finlayson fife who's been on our podcast a few times. Uh, she's a really insightful psychologist and expert in lots of fun things. And we're glad to have her. And then we have Chelsea FIFE and Michael FIFE, a husband and wife. And Chelsea has been on our show a few times. Let me introduce our topic and how this sort of came about today. We actually here at Mormon Matters had another one planned and it kind of all fell apart on Friday night. And so Chelsea and I have just talked off and on over the last six months about various topics. And so I just called her Saturday morning and said, hey, what can we put together in a hurry? And it turned out that all the ones that we talked about before, we uh, we just didn't go to. And she says, well, let me share. And so what we're going to have here today, she says, let me share a little bit about what Mike and I have been talking about in our home. And so they laid out the topic that we ended up going with tonight, which is obedience, agency, the tension between the two, the calling of being obedient to God versus the rhetoric and sometimes things that say in the church that we should really look to our leaders, they're the ones who are closer to God, they're the ones who maybe have the clearer insight, and so sometimes we emphasize things and things maybe get a little bit out of whack. So we're going to have a robust discussion from the FIFES, all three, and uh, I'll let you guys clarify, as far as you know, you don't think that you're related, right? Right.
2: Well, I'm sure if we go back far enough that Michael and I would be related. My birth name is Fife, but we haven't yet figured out. it's We're not uh, first cousins. We might be second, third, or fourth cousins.
3: <laughs> yeah, so, okay. so, so somewhere in the a big family reunion in the sky, we're probably related. So. <laughs> right. At this point, I haven't met her.
2: Right. I've still never met Michael. Oh, so. really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know
1: that. Okay. <laughs> Well, anyway, it's great to have you guys, and let me just, if you don't mind, have you reintroduce yourselves just a little bit for those who are maybe hearing you for the first time. So, Jennifer, would you start?
2: Sure. So, I'm Jennifer finlayson Fife. I live in Chicago, and I grew up in Burlington, Vermont. Went to BYU as an undergraduate and Boston College, where I got my PhD in counseling psychology, and I, I practice here in Chicago as a therapist, uh, working mostly on marital and sexuality issues, Primarily with LDS couples, it's just evolved that way. And I have three children, I'm married, and really enjoy the Midwest.
1: Very cool, and we love having you. Thank you for coming back on again. Thank you. And Chelsea, would you reintroduce yourself to us?
0: Sure, sure. I, uh, I grew up in California. Mike and I met while we were students in Provo. We have four kids. I have a background in public relations and communications, and I currently run a marketing research firm here in Salt Lake City. Mike and I lived in the Midwest in Chicago for 10 years, and Jennifer and we share some common friends and certainly some common ward buildings and locations, so that's kind of fun, but I'm just really happy to be here and participate in the, in the conversation.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for doing that, and thank you for bringing along Mike, Mike, our rookie here. Tell us a lot more about yourself.
3: Yes, indeed. So I'll give you the, uh, the shorthand version of the bio, but you know, I've been a, a lifelong member of the church, I grew up in the Seattle, Washington area, and uh, my parents moved there when I was two years old. My father uh, grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, and is a proud LSU graduate. We went to medical school. And my mother's a graduate of BYU, and she, uh, in her youth, moved around the country. So I have two parents that are somewhat uh, foreign to Utah in the sense that they never lived there full-time throughout their youth or their adulthood. So I grew up in the Seattle area, but went to uh, BYU, graduated from there, Met Chelsea on the uh, doorstep of, uh, what was it, the Madison Apartment Complex within Liberty Square Apartments, for those of you who have uh, been <laughs> right, to Liberty Ro. Square.
0: <laughs>
1: yes.
3: And uh, she and I met there and uh, got married and graduated about a year later, and we moved to uh, California. Then we lived abroad, where I worked for uh, a multinational company. It was an expat living abroad. She and I lived in uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina. And from there, we moved to uh, Chicago. We lived there for uh, quite a long time living in places like Evanston and downtown and the heart of the city as well as in the western suburbs. And then we moved out to Salt Lake City about, it's been nearly five years now, which is shocking, but we are approaching our five-year anniversary in the city of North Salt Lake, and we're just happy as clams.
1: Very cool. Well, welcome, welcome, and as I said, it's a, it's a treat to... Uh, have this topic be something that you guys have been talking about and so i i there's a i guess my wife and i talk about interesting and fun gospel topics too but i have a feeling that you guys might go a little bit deeper and a little bit longer and so i'm just thrilled uh, that we get to kind of hear the fruits of some some musings that you guys have been working on a little bit so as we've agreed on ahead of time if you don't mind mike i'm going to throw it to you for the initial framing of the question and and the origins of the tensions at least you know Part, part of those origins. I'm sure there's other factors as well, but let's get the, the ball rolling.
3: Yeah, so this came out of a discussion Chelsea and I were having that's really been going on for the course of the last several months, which is this uh, seemingly overemphasis that we have in the church on obedience to this letter of the law. The letter of the law comes out in in modesty, it comes out in church attendance, and obviously in things like paying tithing, but you hear it so much in the church, and it's beginning to be somewhat uh, overemphasized in general conference, where when we're encouraged to quote, obey the commandments, we're encouraged to pay our tithing and attend the temple and do our home teaching. And that's somewhat where the rhetoric ends. And it's always struck me as relatively puzzling that we don't get into kind of deeper, more meatier topics. And what's ironic is that this emphasis on these kind of outward, evidences of, of obedience become this new measuring stick by which ward members have something new to to judge each other on you know we're looking at each other's hemlines we're looking at you know the degree to which our shoulders are covered up or whether or not we're wearing a white tie excuse me a white shirt and a tie when we attend our meetings and it's, it's obviously not what the gospel of jesus christ is, is centered on now it's not to say of course that every ward and every church around the world is uh, you know, somewhat maniacally focused on these outward observances, but there does seem to be this undercurrent of focus on obedience as opposed to respecting individuals' ability to make a decision for themselves. So Chelsea and I were talking at length about this and kind of discussing how early in the Church that was really the calling card of Mormonism, this idea that, you know, free agency being instilled by our Creator was really the driving force by which we needed to govern our lives. But in the church day, there seems to be more of a compliance to defer to your leaders, unquestioningly, without thinking for yourself regarding what the Spirit may dictate to your heart. So um, it is quite an interesting paradox. And in uh, Terrell Given's book, which many, many of the listeners may have read, titled People of Paradox, he gets into this deep and heavy right in the first chapter. And he outlines this paradox being one of, you know, in antebellum America, back when the church was being restored, Christianity as a whole was going through quite a metamorphosis. There was this change in thinking from the, the Calvinistic or the, uh, uh, you know, the, the more old-school Protestant way of thinking, which was you know, Christianity was based on this idea that humans were inherently evil and depraved, and, and God was the sovereign and somewhat dictated the destinies of man. But as America was founded and founded on this principle of uh, the individual's right to choose, Christianity certainly began to adopt these theories. So as the Victorian age came upon us, which the Victorian age technically started kind of late in the 1830s, 1840, but certainly those veins of thinking were present uh, when the church was being restored, um, you know, this idea that, no, uh, in fact, humankind Really is free to choose, and it's not God that's dictating man's destiny, but rather we as free agents are the ones who are ultimately determining our course. And ironically, Joseph Smith even took it to a higher level when he restored the gospel. You know, his idea of free agency was that you know the intelligence that makes up the human soul. Is, is not created, nor can it be, as it says in the scriptures. It's something that really has existed throughout all eternity, and God is not the creator of it, but rather an organizer, right? He brings together the, the soul and the, and the body, or excuse me, the intelligence and the body, and it creates the soul, which is, the, which is uh, man and woman. And so this idea that, you know, the gospel plan was predicated on individuals thinking for themselves, making choices, then growing to, you know, evolving into these higher spheres was what God wanted. And of course, we all famously know, those of us who grew up in the church, that the ultimate plan of Satan was to thwart that. He wanted to, quote, destroy the agency of man. So right out of the gate, we have this really dramatically revolutionary idea that that God as a sovereign who dictated the affairs of man, you know, Joseph Smith turned it on its head and said, no, intelligence of man and woman uh, cannot be created, neither can it be, but rather it's co-equal, co-eternal with God. In fact, that was a powerful phrase from the King Follett discourse. He literally said they were co-equal and co-eternal with God, that is, the intelligences are, which is really a powerful, empowering way to describe agency. So, that that kind of vein got us talking about this this divergence of thought between obedience without question versus one's individual's right to choose.
1: So, what do you think happened to to take us from that origins and and ha- what, had it already started to happen by the time the Joseph Smith uh, was still alive?
3: It did, in fact. Uh, a lot of the reading that I've done and Chelsea has done. It, you know, it's really Joseph Smith himself that ironically introduced this issue, this dichotomy of obedience versus a free agency. I mean, he came out, and we all know that he claimed to have literally spoken with God and claimed that priesthood was a literal power restored by the physical laying on of hands. And he turned this prophetic office uh, into an office of a president and, and a ruler, you know, a magistrate over cities and so forth. And he pronounced God's will for others. And his gospel required a lot of his followers. It required gatherings and consecrations of property, and he certainly uh, had revelations that dictated what the Lord's will was for specific individuals you know, who were named in Doctrine and Covenants. So, um, you know, so that, that, that call of a, the, of a prophet's mantle of authority to say, this is what the will of the Lord is for you, created this very much fallen line culture that we see present today, which is emphasized in our modern culture even more, because today we live in this post-correlation environment, which we can get into a little bit later. So throughout the course of history of the Church, even though uh, LDS Prophets' claims to this divine, direct, personal, physical communication with God has certainly been muted, and we don't hear Thomas S. Monson declaring to have revelations in the same way Joseph Smith did, that's still very much a vain of belief within uh Mormon church. So as a result, you have these critics today and even then who said, Hey, um, you know, uh, members of the church will follow their leaders no matter what. In fact, people have gone as far as to say that uh, ch- members of the church will follow their leaders without even thinking. And ironically, early church leaders, uh, you know, protested that idea of conformity. Let me just kind of throw in a few quotes to get the uh, dialogue going here. Brigham Young famously said, he said, quote, I don't wish any Latter-day Saint in this world, nor in heaven, to be satisfied with anything I do unless the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Revelation, makes them satisfied. I wish them to know for themselves and understand for themselves. Uh, Brigham Young also said, and this is a big one for us in, in these modern times, he said, quote, I am more afraid that this people have so much confidence in their leaders that they will not inquire for themselves of God whether they are led by Him. I am fearful that they will settle down in a state of blind self-security, trusting their their eternal destiny in the hands of their leaders with a reckless confidence that in itself would thwart the purposes of God. And that's taken from the uh, Journal of Discourses. So you have this really kind of powerful dichotomy between know for yourself, make decisions for yourself, because that is the one and only way we progress. And then on the other hand, you have this increasing rhetoric on obey without questioning. Boyd Key Packer famously gave that CES speech, I believe in, uh, boy, was it uh, the early or mid-1980s, where he uh, he said that the mantle is more powerful than the intellect. You know, that when the priesthood is guiding the church, it knows better than you do, and, of course, the inference there is, well, then why bother question, uh, thou shalt follow along unquestioningly. And that's, of course, that's what people take from it. So it's, it's a really uh, strange uh, dichotomy, divergence, that I don't know if the Church has appropriately addressed. So a lot of us sit here somewhat confused as to, uh, is, that, is that a commandment, or is that counsel, and do I need to obey it? And if so, to what degree? Or if, and if I don't, am I cast out? Uh, where, where is the line drawn? Between agency and obedience, and um, so hence this uh, really uh, interesting topic to dialogue on.
1: Cool. Well, thank you that for very much for that good framing, and I'll just let me throw it to Jennifer or Chelsea for added clarifications, depth, reactions, or even if you think other things are going on that have led to this dichotomy.
0: This is Chelsea. If if I can make a comment, you know, Mike and I had kind of been talking about this. Well, for quite a while, we've been talking about this. But it's interesting to me that many of us as members of the church recognize this paradox and this dichotomy. And we kind of accept it as being strange, but not really, you know, necessarily feeling driven to understand it You know, thoroughly from one position or the other, but it kind of um, hit home for me a little while ago. I was in the car with our eight year old son. Well, actually, he's nine, and you know, we I oftentimes with the kids in the car have talks about, uh, you know, what did you talk about in primary or scripture story, or we'll, we'll talk about different topics in the car. And on the way to school, we had talked about. If you've ever felt the holy Ghost and and they'd kind of yeah, oh yeah, it feels it's kind of a warm feeling, or yeah, I, I felt it sometimes when this or that, and they were very kind of cookie cutter answers, and it was a really light discussion, it wasn 't very deep. well, later in the day, I had noticed that while we were talking about it, my son was kind of participating, but I could tell he wasn't really engaged. I could feel he was a little bit uncomfortable with the question. So later in the day I said to him, "Andrew, you know, when we were talking about the Holy Ghost earlier, you know, what are your thoughts about it while we're together? Have you ever felt the Holy Ghost?" And he kind of looked at me and he said, "Yeah." And I could sense that he he hadn't. And I said, "You know what? it was a long time before I felt the Holy Ghost. You know, when I was nine years old like you, I don't know that I necessarily knew what it felt like, and that is okay. And he immediately just got this look of relief, and he said, Mom, I'm nine years old, and I've already been baptized, and I haven't never felt the Holy Ghost. And everybody says that it feels like um, a warm feeling, or it's a still small voice, but I haven't ever felt it before. And he just had this look of just sadness in his eyes, like something was wrong with him. And it really struck a chord with me as his mother (laughs) that he was somehow picking up somewhere that unless he looked a certain way or said certain things, he somehow wasn't as good as everybody else, or suddenly somehow wasn't as righteous as everybody else, or somehow wasn't as tuned in to God as everybody else. And this whole notion of looking obedient outwardly or saying the right things or, you know, to get a little more deep, um, you know, well, anyways, it struck home to me that that I'm somehow missing an opportunity to really teach my child um, to have agency to know God himself, to see that there are a variation of ways to experience the divine in his life and that there isn't one answer that proves his worthiness or there wasn't one way that proves his discipleship. And so on more of an anecdotal, on more of a personal level, that's how this is beginning to kind of show up in my life and cause me concern to really think about this and really talk about it and see if we can't change the way we're doing it within the church.
1: Awesome. Thank you. That really helps to personalize it like that. Jennifer? I have a couple thoughts. One is I'm really
2: blown away by that Brigham Young quote about how if we blindly follow our leaders, I don't have it in front of me, Michael, I'm just remembering from what you said, that we thwart the purposes of God, essentially. And I think that's so powerful and yet so different from how we often feel in the church today that we often feel there's something righteous and good about sort of a blind trust, even if it goes against our intellect, even if it goes against what we really feel. And I, I, I think it's just really valuable to be discussing how we confront that paradox. I have one other thought, which is um, simply that, you know, just something I've thought about quite a bit is that, you know, I think organizations, when they are new, often really embrace creativity and innovation and questioning and, you know, kind of the thinking of all, it's more democratic essentially in its essence in the beginning. And then oftentimes organizations, as they become more established, become more focused on maintaining themselves and kind of remaining intact, perpetuating themselves. And so can often start to see creativity and innovation and challenging questions as a threat And, you know, it makes me think about the possibility that in the church organization that that's been a natural tendency, you know, that in the beginning, there was such an embracing of that individual direction and self-direction and and, um, individual testimony and clarification of what God wanted for you, where it may be that naturally as an organization we've tended to become more focused on sort of this is the doctrine, this is the right way to be, this is how everyone should behave, and perhaps made ourselves as a group less responsive to the needs, the variation, and the, um, of the group, group itself. So we can get into some of that more later, but it's just interesting to think about as Michael is laying out those paradoxes in that movement in the
1: church. Absolutely. And and that thwarting God's purposes, I picked up on that too. And I'm, I'm really glad we have you here to kind of guide us through. I think we're going to end up getting into what is true maturity? What is spiritual development? What is the path of a healthy soul? How do you differentiate from authority figures in a healthy way and how do you take the best of the of the earlier stages and bring them and still let them be alive but now you know forming a core that goes so much deeper or something like that later on in your spiritual journey. So I'm really excited for that framing. I don't want to quite leave the historical framing and things quite yet. And I'm, and maybe all of you already are planning on more stuff here. But Michael, if I can prompt you to, to go to something else that you sort of were raising earlier, use the language of lower and higher laws or views of these sorts of things. So do you remember that stuff that you shared? I do. And, okay, would you mind jumping into that?
3: Yeah, if I could, just before I get to that, uh, there was something that Jennifer just said that made me think of uh, some additional topics that Chelsea and I were discussing this evening, which is, you know, Jennifer just mentioned that initially, you know, uh, when, when the movements start, there's more democracy within them. And, uh, you know, Terrell Gibbons speaks of that democratization of religion in the early part of the uh, of the church, you know, early part of the the, the restoration, you know, where there was certainly more... Uh, you know, it was more free-flowing, there was more agency, there was more encouragement around those things. And then, ironically, it somewhat uh, kind of died off as we've kind of fell into this more corporatism, which you hear critics of the church today somewhat accuse the church of, that we're all kind of in in line and step one with another. And um, I think there's a historical uh, shift there that's occurred. You know, I was reading an article by D. Michael Quinn that outlined the, the church's rise from obscurity you know, somewhat... Uh, bedeviled by this issue of polygamy in the 1800s where once the manifesto occurred and Reed Smoot was eventually seated as a U.S. senator we began to see this shift in uh, Mormons being seen not just as these oddballs from Utah who were doing crazy things and having weird relationships but rather Americans were beginning to get their first exposure to that and then of course when you Fast forward through the World War I and World War II, there was a lot of humanitarian work the church did. We began to reach out. We began to knock on the door of the mainstream. And then with David O. McKay, you see the Mormon Tabernacle Choir beginning to sing at presidential inauguration. So now we're fully in the mainstream. Now, ironically... You know, when I was at uh, Northwestern University, uh, when Chelsea and I moved to Chicago, I, I, I was attending and ultimately earned a, a master's degree in business from a Northwestern University. And during that time, I did a lot of study on uh, 1950s consumerism because that was certainly a, a bedrock of learning about, you know, some of the original marketing principles. And I, I emphasized in marketing and advertising and things of that nature. So, you know, it's ironic that the 1950s, which is David O. McKay's era, and it was the era that preceded correlation in the church was defined by this post-war uh, kind of hierarchicalism, this, this notion that you know we came out of World War II, uh, the military and, and mass production of goods uh, was all done in this very hierarchical, very kind of corporate way. You know, Military life, of course, is defined by doing things very precisely, everybody falling in line, your shoes have to look a certain way, and as all these G.I.s, Came back from the war and flooded the American workplace in positions of leadership. That mentality stayed. So famously, the '50s was all about this heavy con, you know, conformity. You had, a, a, you know, sociologists talking about how there was this new dominant characterological type of person. This they called them the other-directed man, which was not interdirected, directed people that kind of followed their own heart, but rather they were following what they saw other people do. And you know, there's a, the whole body of a sociological work that goes into this notion that people were very into conformity. And that led to the 1960s rebellion and uh, kind of the, the kind of the uh, anti-social movement and things of that well, nature.
0: And that also, as I'm listening to you, that also led to second-wave feminism. You know, so it, it wasn't just societies in large. There were little segments of the population also that were really uh, deeply affected by that post-war uh, mentality.
3: Yeah, so that, mm-hmm. that, that affected various veins of life. Now, ironically, correlation... You know, in, online at LDS.org, you can go there today to the student manual for the uh, uh, the church and the fullness in the dispensation of the fullness of times it called, and it gives you a history on correlation. And we all, a lot of us know that it started in 1960. So really, that group of leaders who were somewhat uh, born of that culture of conformity created correlation, right? So now we're all singing from the same hymn books. You know, every church is run exactly the same way. Uh, econ- economists began to call that Big Mac standardization, right? So everybody's looking the same, feeling the same. Everything has the exact same appeal, weight, size, everything else. And and uh, so correlation led to this. You know, you have to do it a certain way. We teach it a certain way, i.e., to, to Chelsea's point, the Holy Ghost is felt this way, and there wasn't much divergence from that. And and I don't know if the church has ever evolved beyond that. We still have correlation in our souls. We all kind of march to the same drum, and critics today, of course, point to corporatism, and you know, we're all still these men and women in the, in the proverbial gray flannel suits, right? So it's kind of interesting, historically, I think our shift from the democratization of religion and free agency to this emphasis on obedience has somewhat followed that historical thread of, you know, uh, the church rising to the mainstream and therefore standardizing its approach to everything, and as a result that's somewhat strangled You know, the individual freedom to choose, uh, particularly when it comes to sensitive topics like Prop 8 or what have you.
0: That's really interesting. That's really interesting. But I want to throw something in that might challenge that just a little bit, and that is the history of the Relief Society, the history of women within the church, which some of the changes that we saw, in fact, some of the most intense changes that we saw uh, with women and women's rights in the church happened you know, in the late 1800s and early 1900s before some of this cultural change happened. And so I'd be curious to kind of dialogue about how this may have impacted um, the church. But, you know, in the early days of the church, we saw women acting much more in a, alliance with their relationships with God, i.e. women giving blessings, women being taking a much more active role in participating in different areas of the church without necessarily being asked to do so. And I think that that segment of time where women were giving blessings one to another and were um, functioning in the spirit. They were, you know, using the spiritual gifts that they identified in themselves, which was one of the early principles and doctrines of the church. And they were doing that without asking a lot of questions, without asking a lot of permission. And we see that kind of phase out as women began to stop looking upward to receive their revelation for how to engage and act on their spiritual gifts. And they began looking outward to leadership. You know, okay, so we have a woman and she's going to have a baby and we want to wash and anoint her and do this beautiful ceremony with her that we've done for many, many years. Can we do that if she hasn't yet been through the temple? Well, we better ask the brethren. Okay, well, if her husband's home and he is, uh, you know, a, a, a member of the priesthood, should we defer to him and allow him to bless? Okay, well, if he's there, should we ask him to stand in with us and help wash and anoint? Okay, well, maybe, and we started to ask questions to the leadership, and I think it began easy, became easy then for leadership to say, well, okay, yeah, that's a good question, so maybe let's do it this way. Okay, that's a good question, so maybe let's do it this way. Okay, well, maybe if there's a man there, let's just ask the brethren to do it. So sisters, let's stop doing it. So we started to see this kind of implementation of, Maybe early correlation, if you can call it that, mm-hmm. of women, yeah. yeah, of women becoming fearful of, you know, looking upward to God for answers of how to act on their spiritual gifts and beginning to look outward. So, Mike, it's fascinating. I like seeing the progression. I agree with you that that's um, a really big piece of it. But I'm curious how you think this kind of fits into it as well, because this was clearly a little bit before before that time.
2: Well, Chelsea, can I say something about that? I, I mean, I ha- it's been a while since I've read the history uh, on some of this, but my recollection, and I may be wrong, is I was actually thinking correlation happened earlier in the 1900s, and I think Michael's right about that. Uh, but what I think did in fact happen is that the women in the Relief Society, like they had their own magazine, The Exponent, and they wrote their own curriculum or their own you know, lessons. There was more freedom to criticize the brethren and to you know point to their shortcomings as well and my recollection is it was in the early 1900s when it wasn't necessarily the women looking to the men for affirmation but more that the relief society was actually succeeding economically that the women were quite powerful and strong and at least the interpretation of the the historian that i read was that in some ways the the male leadership was looking to kind of establish more authority over the Release Society and in this person's interpretation because of their strength and their relative power. So I don't know if other historians would agree with that perspective or not, but it may have been not just women looking to men for approval, it may have also been some of the leadership feeling threatened by the female strength of the Release Society.
3: If I could just chime in super fast on that. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think the history of the church, as it relates to women, followed this similar vein of starting with democratization, somewhat more free-flowing freedom to experiment, to try, to embrace uh, powers, gifts as they were made manifest. And then it slowly phased out, uh, kind of giving itself up to, you know, a, a, you know more of a, a standardized approach, i.e., let's look to the brethren, and, and the next thing you know, those gifts and those... Individual magazines, they all faded out, albeit on a different uh, kind of chronological time frame. It happened much earlier than Correlation, Correlation being kind of a named program in the church that was branded a certain way. Uh, but, but, but nevertheless, I think the, tra- the trajectories are very similar, You know, starting with democratization and somewhat ending in standardization.
0: Yeah, yes. that's interesting. It is. It does seem like maybe it is kind of a microcosm of what happened to the bigger church. And Jennifer, I think you're right. I think it's probably hard to say exactly what it was. I don't know that we could ever really have a record that says those darn women are just getting too powerful. But I, I think mm-hmm. that there, there certainly is evidence that it could be a multiplicity of reasons that uh, women in their power to... You know, act was was diminished, and I yes. I think there could be a bunch of different cases. But I do agree. I think that's an excellent point, Mike. That what happened with the Relief Society very well may have been a microcosm for what was happening with the the church at large. I think that's really fascinating, a- and with society at large as well.
1: Yeah, very interesting, guys. I'm I'm really excited for that extra framing there. I still want to stick a little bit more with some of these points. That- before we jump into sort of jennifer and helping us with psychological pieces of the puzzle the the journey to maturity and all that stuff and how obedience and authority you know agency type stuff works into that i would like to what are the critiques if you guys wanted to just sit there and say at this point what are the critiques of what has happened where would you start and and you know, let's not we're not going personal, we're not doing anything else this We're just trying to say problem, problem, problem. here's are the problems with what's happening here, and then we can dive deeper in, I think with with Jennifer taking the lead
3: well if i if I can take a stab at that, Dan, I think that aligns with what your your original question was was this notion of lower law versus the higher law. So I think one critique Good. that I would have would be. You know, um, as we focus more and more on these external, out, these outwardly uh, evidences of our obedience, meaning our hemlines are the right length, our shirts are the right color, our, our church attendance is, is perfect, our attendance at uh, mutual and other youth activities is ideal, uh, you know, it begins to somewhat uh, strangle the spirit of the law. You know, I'm going to forget this scripture quote in the New Testament where, you know, the, uh, the letter of the law. Uh, strangleth the spirit or crushes the spirit, something to that effect that Paul said. But, you know, so obedience, as we all know, is a foundational law of the gospel. You know, it's certainly uh, mission critical that we obey, quote, the commandments. Now, most of us simply, certainly have an easier time obeying the lower level laws of the commandments, like most of us here on this phone call, and certainly a lot of our listeners aren't murdering and stealing necessarily. So we all do a good job with that. But... But those are certainly lower laws. Uh, I had a BYU professor that uh, spent quite a bit of time diagnosing lower law and higher law. And of course, the lower law kind of, uh, kind of epitomized by the Mosaic law was you know, uh, you, know, uh, you know eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And, and there was all this focus on these external ordinances that you had to do so precisely. But the higher law that Christ came to replace was of course one that was a little bit more subjective. It was it was more around, you know, if you know, if you should turn the other cheek, or if somebody compels you to go a mile with them, uh, you should go, you should go, you should go double, you know, willingly with them. So, well, and and
1: for instance, it's adultery isn't just wrong; it's all the things in your heart that lead up to adultery, to lust after, or something that exactly. is wrong. And so, yeah. so, so forces you into that area where you really can't measure it externally. You mm-hmm. have to. It forces you to, to measure it. In your own heart,
3: mm-hmm. yeah, and and you know we're we're encouraged to uh, not be angry because those who is you know he who is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment, and and the list goes on. We all know this from like the the literal gospels, you know, like the Sermon on the Mount, the famed speech by the Lord where he dictates this higher law, and what's interesting about the higher law is that it's not as easily subjected to. These, these black and white measures of are you doing it or are you not? So if I go to church, you, know, you could check off the list easily that I've gone to church. And we hear that from leaders all the time as being you know, one of the measures of our faithfulness. But how easy is it for me to determine if, quote, I have sufficiently removed a beam from my own eye you know, prior to helping somebody with theirs? Or have I sufficiently walked in twain with somebody who has compelled me to go a mile uh, those are very subjective, and it's not necessarily answered by virtue of you know, black and white, yes or no, but it's more, to what degree have I done it? Have I magnified my ability to do it? And the only people who can answer that is you as an individual and the Lord, and that requires that kind of interconnectedness, that, that, that individual working out his salvation with fear and trembling. But, but unfortunately, in the church, the rhetoric we hear is more often on these more easily observable evidences of faithfulness. Pay tithing, go on a mission, uh, dress modestly, and that's where it ends. You know, we had a fun discussion this week on the most recent visiting teaching message that Chelsea may touch on that talked on just that topic. It was, it was, it was relegated just to these external you know, evidences of, of belief, so, which, which can be troubling for some people. So it, it's interesting that while obedience is important, it's a bedrock foundation of the gospel— it's, you know, obeying these lower level aspects of the law certainly is not what saves us. And just to kind of finalize this thought, uh, you know, it's interesting to me that in the temple, for those uh, here on, who are listening who have been to the temple, you know, you certainly agree to obey the law uh, of obedience right out of the gate. It's one of the first things you do. But as, I, as I've attended the temple and gone frequently, and I typically attend the Salt Lake Temple where it's a live session, so some of the nuances are a little bit more recognizable. When you, when you agree to live the law of the gospel, it's the agreeing to that law that elevates you out of the dark and jury room, or the dark and jury world, that is, the room you're in, you know, that represents the dark and jury world. And then you, you physically change rooms to go to the higher kingdom by virtue of having taken upon you that agreement to obey this higher law, which is this more subjective law that's measured only by virtue of your interpersonal relationship with God. But, nevertheless, we have this other side of that coin, which is our church leader saying, listen to us only and do not trust in yourself, because the mantle of the priesthood is greater than the intellect, to quote our famous friend, Boyd K. Packer. So, um, anyways, there you go, Dan
1: yeah we need to be careful a little bit because that isn't the only message we hear. We hear the other ones, but I know that lots of people who listen to this podcast, especially those who might have some frustrations maybe our our ear is a little bit more attuned <laughs> to Agreed. the, the, yeah. the, the yeah. Fo- follow me follow me rather than follow your heart and stuff. but I've at least found that whenever you offer up well you know there are there' are, there is that level of, you know, looking to our leaders, etc. But if you throw in there that the real task is this, and, you know, more of this internal stuff, everyone still nods. So it mm-hmm. is sort of a proportion thing in what we hear, but at least what we're calling, I, I would guess that all of us will be in agreement here on this, I don't think we can say that it's foreign to the gospel. We're not talking <laughs> anything that's yeah, not agree. Not, but, not definitely there, for sure.
3: And Just, just a small editorial comment of myself, I mean, I, I agree with you, there's a lot of a lot of other messages that sometimes we we don't focus on as much as perhaps the, you know. So, so I agree with you. Your point is that we certainly hear the other side of the coin, and uh, I would endorse that fully.
2: Can I just say, something Quick to that is, I think that while I think that you're right, both of you that that those both are stated. I do think we prioritize the sort of outward. Uh, manifestations over the internal ones. Meaning, because it's so easy to judge if someone's doing the outward manifestations of compliance and obedience, that certainly we hope the internal stuff is going on at the same time, but we wouldn't give the same credibility. It's almost like we would excuse more somebody who's at least coming to church and doing her visiting teaching, even if she goes home and gossips every time after church and says mean things about everyone there that we're almost more willing to excuse that culturally than we are of somebody who doesn't go to church, who drinks, and actually is much more compassionate and service-oriented than the person who's going to church.
0: I would agree. I think that's a good point. In fact, um, I got on LDS.org, and out of curiosity, I just searched two different words. I searched the word obedience to see how many times it would come up, and I searched Uh, the phrase personal revelation. And I was really surprised to see that when I searched the word church, or excuse me, obedience in church manuals, when I searched, you know, how many lessons or, or comments about obedience came up in church manuals, it came up 667 times. When I searched personal revelation in those same manuals, it only came up 89 times. So there was definitely a heavier emphasis in our mm. manuals on obedience. Now, I did the same thing, obedience and personal revelation. I searched in uh, general conference talks. So when I searched general conference talks for talks about obedience, obedience was talked about and taught eight, in 804 uh, different references. In general conference, personal revelation was taught only, or talked about, only 83 times. So there Mm was a really, there was a lot more weight, a lot more time spent teaching (laughs) obedience, both in church manuals and and general conference, than there was personal Mm -hmm. revelation, which I thought was interesting and really kind of validates here what we're talking about, that the emphasis seems to be heavily on obedience.
1: It is interesting, but I still don't know that that would have captured it fully because Obedience to God could very well have been the emphasis on all those obedience ones, unless we were to more, more carefully do it. For instance, I you know I heard the phrase "obedience is the first law of heaven." I was fairly certain it wasn't in Scripture, but it seems like that's what always comes up in church. And you know I did locate it, and it is in. It's Bruce R. McConkie, Mormon doctrine, he states it. But again, it's it's obedience to God, and I so I would really wonder how much the it is skewed to obey your leaders. I think it is. But I don't know that it would be eight hundred to eighty, you know, ten to one. It'd be interesting it be.
0: for some. It'd be interesting for somebody to look, for sure, for sure. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. But anyway, so I'm not trying to la la land Pollyanna, but I. But on the other hand, I don't want to. I don't want to skew the record because I think I. I generally think I hear obedience, meaning to God, to commandments, to the Holy Ghost, to the promptings of the Spirit, more than I hear the other. But again, I do hear it, and I do hear, and I do think. That all of our, all the sensibilities that are coming apart here, it's because it's easier to measure, it's easier to, you know, feel good about your own stewardship if you can kind of validate that there's been growth in home teaching or, you know, growth in temple attendance or something like that. So I do see that that's there.
0: Yeah, and I agree. And I I, I would guess that most of us here don't have a problem with the message of obedience. I mean, I I don't have a a problem with the message of obedience at all. My concern comes from how do I I balance out and teach my children – that they really need to develop a relationship with God, and they need to trust that. That while it's so important to have a prophet and to have leaders and to have authority figures who give you counsel and who you know can look ahead and, and give you advice, and that that's a really important element of your growth and development. Even as important as that is, is your own relationship with God. And I know that in my experience of growing up in the church, I I, I seem to miss that message. Of really how to develop my own relationship with God, that it seemed to be easier, like you said, uh, Dan, to do the outward things—to go to church every week, to go to my mutual activities, to work on my, you know, young women's medallion, to do the baptisms for the dead. Those things were things I could easily do and measure my righteousness, if you will. It was. A lot more abstract and a lot more, I had to be a lot more creative to learn how to develop my own relationship with God. You know, I could sit down and read my scriptures and mark that off as being obedient, but how many of us can read our scriptures every day but actually never actually internalize what message is there for us? Just like, you know, I I tell my kids all the time, you can pray morning and night and never actually commune with God. You can do your visiting teaching, your home teaching every single month and never really connect with those people and serve them. You can go to the temple every week and never really develop spiritually. So what is that magic little component that enables or or clicks with somebody to help them realize what it means for them to personally develop their relationship with God? That's, That's a lot harder to teach than do this, 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 and that to appear and be righteous. So that's kind of the conundrum is obedience is good. It's really important. It's one of those ways means by which we can grow closer to the Lord by being obedient. But in addition to that, we have to find God ourselves. We have to find him on our own so that we can balance out that obedience to the prophet with our own understanding and recognition of what it feels like to interact with God.
1: Very good. And that's a great transition into your stuff, Jennifer. <laughs>
0: Sure. And I didn't know if we wanted to
2: articulate any more critiques, but I was going to kind of state how I do think what Chelsea's articulating, and even my critique earlier around the fact that even though we do hear both about obedience and personal revelation and agency, that we still will tend to judge more harshly the person who's not going to church, is, I think, a function perhaps of the transition in the church to a focus on obedience, but is still very much a function of being human beings. And I think our human nature that Christ was very much trying to talk to us about was this tendency and willingness to place people in hierarchies, to want to judge one another, to say, I'm better than you are, or that person's better than I am based on external um, manifestations of compliance. And, you know, I just remember being on my mission and really trying to push myself to have my intention matter more than the measures I would send back to the mission president. And so I would think, you know, I'm not going to focus on passing out 10 books of Mormon, even though everything in me wanted to be a good girl and to get approval, wanted to do that. I would say I want to really make Ten sincere connections with people, but it—but more important than ten is to make sincere connections with people. And honestly, that desire to get that ten <laughs> would win out with me often because it was just that immature wish to get the validation of the group. So uh,
1: very interesting.
2: So I just think that's a part of our nature. Um, I don't know if you want to focus more on some of the limitations of an obedience focus, but I I think a couple thoughts that come to mind for me is I do think, and as I'll talk about a bit more, I I do think if we're really focused on there's strength in correlation, because, you know, there's some comfort at least for me when I traveled around the world and when I was younger of showing up in an LDS church in Germany or, you know, Japan and having, basically the same feel the same songs the same, you know the same structure there was a comfort in that sense of this is part of what it means to be a member of this church um, I do think you know there's something clarifying about setting a curriculum and setting up programs I think the downside of that is that it makes us less flexible as a church and as individual congregations to respond to the needs of the group and especially to the degree that it stifles the open expression of real feeling and real need in the name of compliance it it precludes us from really having the leadership and even the membership be responsive to that individuality and it may be a piece of why we have been seeing some struggle around the act, the levels of activity go down within the church is because i think many young people are feeling like the church doesn't speak to them anymore and this may be a function of our rigidity as a group. So it's just a thought as to one of the costs.
1: Yeah, very interesting. Thank you. Mike, did you have anything before we move on?
3: Uh, I just throw in one quick comment about um, about this, and I think it tees up Jennifer's piece. Is uh, now I've often thought that you know, we do emphasize obedience to the commandments, Dan, to your point. And that's all great. That's all fantastic stuff. We need to be obedient. But I've often wondered, for those of us who are active in the church, I mean, I consider myself a, somewhat of a, a TBM care, card-carrying member of the church, right? I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm fairly orthodox. Uh, you know, I currently hold a calling. I served a mission in Argentina. But from all of us who are, quote, obeying the commandments, you know, we've managed not to murder or steal. We're pretty <laughs> much, you know, uh, you know, keeping the word of wisdom. And the biggest question, well, then What? And that's one area that I don't think the church helps us as much. you know what can we do if we're keeping those the the quote the commandments," which we hear somewhat generically all the time? What's next? And I do have some thoughts that, that might be more appropriate for how we wrap up, but uh you know it, it does beg this question as to what if you're obeying the commandments, well then what else do we do? Some of us are just satisfied with you know you know checking off the list and uh but, but a lot of us aren't. I think that's why some right, people end up disaffected. Right.
1: Yes, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Obeying the commandments can be very surface and, like you say, hardly thinking about it, you just manage to, these are checklists, fine type things, but obeying the commandments, obeying God, obeying the will (laughs) that you sense that God has for you, that can go way deep. And we'll definitely Mm -hmm. get to there at the end for sure. So, great. Well, good. Jennifer, if you don't mind taking us through some of the ideas that you shared with us ahead of time, especially from this perspective of of growing up and, mm-hmm. and, and life and what it's all about and, you know, moving from fear as a motivation to, to the higher type stuff. I don't know if higher mm-hmm. is the best way to say it, but why don't mm-hmm. you just go ahead and, and riff and we'll all jump in with questions and comments.
2: Sure. So I guess I think, um, I, I think I brought this up on one of our other podcasts, but just, I think as children or in our youth, there is not another way to sort of think about who we are, except for how parents and leaders and other people respond to us, that we are kind of dependent upon that validation from other people. And, you know, ultimately, I think our spiritual strength comes in growing out of that dependency upon validation from other people and finding an internal strength and a communion with God and a clarity about who we are that defines how it is that we engage with in a, with one another in our spiritual quest, in our quest for truth. But I think that, you know, obedience, for example, you know, it can be fear-based obedience or it can be more courage-based obedience. And I think fear-based obedience, the way I think of it is basically it's a kind of shutting down of our internal compass of ourselves as a reference point. In an effort to comply with what we feel is being asked of us by parents, by leaders, by, by our community, by our wards, in order to get the approval and the validation of that group. And so it's a way of saying, you know, I don't really, doesn't really matter so much what I believe or feel. I know that everyone around me certainly seems to be confident that this is true and everyone else is telling me this is what I should do. And certainly I want the approval of this group. Therefore, I will do it. And I think there is, can potentially be some value in that because certainly as children growing up, trusting in certain people and taking their advice and acting on it allows us to protect ourselves, to make better decisions than we might make on our own and so on. But at a certain point, you know, I think that compliance, if you shut down your own internal reference your own capacity to feel the spirit to look for direction to keep your own integrity as a guide that it actually becomes dangerous that level of compliance you know and you know oftentimes people will comply against their own sense of integrity because they're looking for a sense of identity they're looking for a sense of being you know feeling superior and you know that certainly was the psychology of Nazi Germany. It's that people sort of shut down their own integrity and gave themselves over to a leader. I think that spiritual maturity really depends upon our ability to to really use our own selves as a guide, meaning our own internal compass, our own reference point. And as we talk about it, I think following the Holy Ghost, um, that Daring to let ourselves think for ourselves and daring to let ourselves question and daring to let ourselves find what we really feel is true and right for ourselves is often a, a scary process, especially if it doesn't lead you to exactly what everyone you care about tells you you ought to think and feel. Let me say one other thing about that. You know, the, the courage part of obedience, I think, is that oftentimes we do feel that something's right. Maybe the whole group believes it also, but we really do believe something is right for us and we really feel we ought to follow it. It's not because we want everyone's approval. It's because we really do believe that this would pull us into a higher way of being with ourselves, with others, with God. And it takes enormous courage often to let go of the often comfortable but less developed ways of being in the world and to really reach for that higher way of being. And, I, you know, I think faith is very similar to the concept of obedience because the way that, you know, I've learned about the idea of faith in the church is that faith is belief with works. You know, it's it's actually our action uh, towards what we really feel is right. And, and I see in my own office all the time, working with couples and individuals, this kind of stretching ourselves towards what we really feel is right that oftentimes people will get feedback from me or from their spouse about an immaturity within them a way in which they're being unchristlike or hurtful and they feel invited essentially by their own conscience and their own sense of self to step into a better way of being and it and, and, and it takes a lot of courage it takes a lot of faith and i think obedience is a way of thinking about that that the spirit is essentially inviting them into a higher way and that they are turning themselves over to that, even though they feel quite afraid often. Oftentimes, anxiety is a big part of it because you're letting go and of go with something more known and more comfortable, even if that known and comfortable way of being in the world is making you miserable. So there is this courage-based obedience, if that's a way of saying it, that often pulls us into better ways of being in the world. But that's very different than doing it because you want other people's approval, think it's really based in doing it because you know it's right. You feel compelled to do the right thing. And you really want to turn yourself over to this higher way of being, even if you're afraid.
0: Jennifer, that's so interesting. And do you think that fear-based obedience is where we all start? Um, Or is it, okay, how early do you think you can teach and encourage this kind of faith-based obedience? Because that's the ideal. That's where we all want to be. That's that's where obedience is so beautiful and and is so, you know, enlightening in the gospel. Yes. How do you encourage that? And how young can you teach that to a child? I may have answered a little
2: quickly to say I think it's all fear-based because it's not necessarily true to say like my five-year-old who tonight was helping me Clean up the house was delightfully compliant and delightfully. I mean, this isn't always the way it is, I promise, but you know, she was making her own to do list and she was doing it. And, um, you know, it was partly because she enjoyed it. She enjoyed the pleasure of doing what I asked her. But part of it was she was getting my validation for it for sure. And she could see that it was pleasing to me. And, you know, a part of her wants very much to know that she's pleasing. So, I wouldn't say that's all fear-based, but certainly it's an effort to kind of be what we think the world and, the, and our group is asking us to be. I think that is something that you almost can't escape for very young children, because they don't really have yet a developed an internal source for that sense of self. However, I think what we do as parents from the very beginning, for example, is really what sets up our children to reference themselves. Because if a parent is, you know, in trauma, essentially, or when children really are not parented, ideally, what happens is that child learns at a young age that they have to, com- to um, conform to what the parent needs in order for the parent to give them any approval. And oftentimes that child learns, I have to give up what I really think and feel and be what my mom idealizes or wants so that I can feel that I am sufficient. And I don't have another way of thinking about how to be with myself. Therefore, I will shut down how I feel, what I want. She's always wanted a son to be an attorney. Therefore, I'll be an attorney or whatever it is, or a son who goes on a mission. Therefore, I'll go. And I don't really dare to um, compromise or threaten that sense of belonging by following my own internal sense of things. Now, a child who gets a clear sense from their parents that you matter You will always matter and what you think and feel also matters and it matters in our family and it matters to me as your mother. That's a child that learns that who they are is really essential and is valuable and is something that that has been upheld in the family as important. And the more mature a family system is, the more it actually welcomes that diversity the more it can tolerate those challenges and the more it can really allow all the members of that group to really know and be known, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But that takes a lot of strength from the parental system that many parents and church leaders, for example, do not have.
0: That's that's really interesting. And to apply that to the way that we function in the church and, and maybe to even apply it to the the story that i shared earlier about my 9-year-old son i can see how that i can see how that works being taught yeah. over and over and over again that this is how it feels to feel the holy ghost you've been baptized you have the holy ghost therefore you should feel it right. and and not ever having a safe place to express the fact that wait i haven't ever felt it does that mean something's wrong with me does that mean i'm uh, not as righteous i can see how that plays into the way that we're raising our kids in the church as well
2: Yes, and I was actually thinking when you told the story this was a brilliant example of parenting because you sensed some ambivalence and anxiety on his part, and you reached towards him and it allowed him to to speak honestly about I actually don't know how that feels, mom and to you know that had he not had that conversation with you, harboring a sense of shame that I'm somehow less than or insufficient because my experience isn't isn't c- compliant or similar to what everybody else is telling me I should feel. And so oftentimes those people will go silent rather than speaking up and saying, you know, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know what that feels like. I don't I haven't had that experience.
0: Absolutely. And I think we see that in the church all the time when it comes to doubt, when it comes to being obedient, when it comes to sharing what you felt your own personal experiences or revelations are from the Lord. There's not a lot of room for variation, and therefore we tend to conform so that we don't lose the approval of our community, of That's our right. church members.
2: Yes, I absolutely agree. And, and I think we really lose a kind of uh, authenticity and realness that makes it hard, I think, for sometimes for people to be at church because this is a group with a lot of hard-won wisdom and variation in experience that often doesn't speak authentically because they don't want to lose the approval, as you say, or, they're, or they want very much to be seen as normal and, and good. But then we, that's really a loss for all of us when that authentic experience does not get shared, even if it feels threatening when it's shared.
0: Absolutely. This might, This is a quote I wanted to share earlier, and, and maybe this is an appropriate time to share it. It kind of goes along with uh, some of what you're saying, Jennifer, but Jared Anderson actually forwarded me this quote earlier today, and I think it speaks well to what we're talking about. It's a Hubie Brown uh, quote. It was an address to BYU, May 13th, 1969. He says, "'Preserve, then, the freedom of your mind in education and in religion, and be unafraid to express your thoughts and to assist upon your right to examine every proposition.'" we are not so much concerned with whether your thoughts are orthodox or heterodox as we are that you shall have thoughts. And Mm -hmm. I think it kind of speaks to what you're talking about, Jennifer, the fact that we're all learning and growing line upon line, precept upon precept. We're at different levels of our development spiritually and emotionally. And to have a safe place like Church, like a a tight knit community, like we're all so fortunate to be a part of in the gospel, is really such a marvelous opportunity for us to grow and develop. And being obedient to um, the laws of the gospel are so useful and so good. And being able to receive our own revelation from God and share that revelation and our insights with others is so, I don't know, enriching for us and for others. I, I think it's a really wonderful opportunity that we have to be in such a beautiful community, and I love that you're talking about this need to be open, to share our experiences, to share our doubts, to share our beliefs, that that really, you know, adds to the richness of the experience and the ability for us as a people to mature and to grow and to become more like Christ, because we Mm -hmm. do need to think about things. We do need to challenge things. That's how we learn. You know, I was telling our kids tonight, Mike and I were talking to them, and we were they were talking about this lesson that they had at church about how they're like a grain of salt, and they're so pure, and they're so clean, and when they make a mistake like smoking a cigarette or drinking alcohol, these were the examples. It's like <laughs> pouring pepper all over into the, the salt, you know, and and we're talking to them about how the pepper doesn't ruin the salt. It doesn't ruin the salt. It's those mm. bad choices that we all are going to make in our lives that help us uh, re-correct and decide what better decisions we want to make in the future. And so this idea of uniform conformity, uniform obedience to these you know, outward laws is, is in, in my opinion, a little bit, um, what's the word? It kind of keeps us from recognizing the choices that we didn't like and correcting to make a decision that we do like the next time. Mm -hmm. Um, When you're always judging somebody because they have an extra earring, because their hemline isn't long enough, because they missed one week of church or they missed their visiting teacher or they didn't turn in their elders quorum reports or whatever it is, you're really limiting somebody's opportunity to, quote, be righteous in your eyes. You've already determined that they are in this box (laughs) or in that box as opposed to seeing that Maybe there's a little pepper mixed in, and they don't want the pepper there next time, so they're going to course correct and make a new decision.
1: Mm -hmm. Hey, let me jump in to do a little steering here, if you guys don't mind. Um, I I want to head us in in certain directions, and and we won't drop any of these, but I just want to look. One of the big questions we're going to push us to towards the end is how do we become or how do we be spiritually mature in the current lds climate in this climate that's maybe not emphasizing so that's where we're headed but to get there i definitely want a little bit more about what the tasks of a maturing psychologically healthy spiritually healthy person is and so i definitely want to go back to jennifer there but i didn't want to leave chelsea's question behind of how early can i teach my children this and i Mm -hmm. I love your answer jennifer but my own reading mm-hmm. of developmental psychology, my own Piaget, Lawrence Kohlberg, things like that, mm-hmm. just to let you know, obviously you start right from the beginning, but it takes a long time oh, yeah. for human beings to do it. I don't think either mm-hmm. Piaget or Kohlberg have you in, I don't is it Piaget, is it formal operational thinking is mm-hmm. his, is his. Mm-hmm. It's, it's late teens, early 20s, that you're really capable of of being self-directed now of course you're modeling it as a parent to always encourage them to hear those things but you know you can't teach it right. as a as a discrete unit and expect it to happen it's something that they live into and i think the best thing is our own modeling of that's what we're doing <laughs> is going to be the best way to teach our children right so i wanted to throw that in there that it's a long long process but jennifer right. if you don't mind me miss forcing you to talk about differentiation. Talk about, you know, these steps that we need to do just in in terms of our own parents and our own walk in life. And before we even add in the spiritual dimensions of it all.
2: Well, I'm not sure when you say the steps, if I know exactly what you mean, but what I, I guess what I would, what I think you're asking of me is, you know, essentially, like I was saying earlier, we can't help but use everyone else as a reference point for who I am. And, you know, when we are in the most loving environments, we are going to have an easier time, as I was saying, using ourselves ultimately as a reference point. But even in those loving environments that that children and adolescents are still really kind of looking to their group and to others. But essentially, if we get stuck there, you know, we, we create a dependency upon everyone outside of us to tell us who we are and if we're okay, that can be a very painful dependency. I think it interferes with our ability to develop spiritually. I think it de- interferes with our ability to develop intimacy in our on our most important relationships. And, you know, that to grow out of it is essentially to start to... Um, not value the external over the internal to not value the group over your own sense of self and that differentiation is in it in its essence giving yourself permission to express who it is that you are in all of your uniqueness as we talk about in the church to fulfill the measure of our creation in in all of its uniqueness and that it is often our fear of doing that, our fear of expressing who we are, for fear that it's not sufficient or because it is different, that we will inhibit that and edit ourselves and be what we think the group wants of us. But differentiation, in my opinion, is really the ability to trust our own sense of self and who God knows us to be enough to express who we are in the world, independent of other people's approval, when it's based in our integrity. So I'm not sure if Dan, that's what you're asking yeah. for. If you no, want more, no, that, than
1: that. that is, that is, and I would want to add a couple of pieces at least. Again, I'm the total amateur here. Um, sure. When we see children differentiating themselves from parents, and often it's lashing out, and let's become goth, or let's, you know, <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're, yes. you know, you, you, you can, just the differentiation again. It, just like the other one, it isn't discrete. It isn't one moment that you've all of a sudden have it. It's a growth yeah. into it. It begins probably with noticing the differences between you and your friends and their personalities, noticing that your parents are human beings, that they're not just, you know, these these enemies who are telling you no, no, no <laughs> all the time, that it's just this large, long growth process, but it has to be done. And, and then the other thing I want to invite you to talk about is I know you talk about it in your marriage uh, workshops and things, the, the mm-hmm. term enmeshment. To yeah. be in en- en- enmeshed I think might be helpful here. Because again there's sure. so many so many things we can get enmeshed in here with this church and this issue of of obedience.
2: Well I would actually say in differentiation doesn't have to be done. I wish that it did. Oh, okay. (laughs) I might be out of business if it happened. (laughs) 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 I think that in fact, people stay in mesh till the day they die. Most people do. Essentially, what it is, is even though the rebellious teenager wants to be goth, essentially, they are sort of attempting to differentiate. But in fact, the reason why being goth is so compelling is because in fact, they still are so dependent upon identity within the group. And so what they're really trying to say is, I reject, but I really care that you see me rejecting. (laughs) I really care that you see me as different and unique. And it's still Mm -hmm. approval-based in a perverse form through the group. True differentiation is when you truly express who you are, and it's based in the core of your identity and your integrity. It's based in self-knowledge. It's based in self-acceptance. And
1: And it's going to take you a lot of faltering steps and missteps. To really Absolutely.
0: discover
1: that. Yeah. So cut
2: yourself
1: Absolutely. some slack. Absolutely.
0: So, yeah. yeah. So Go ahead. To, just to, so I can understand what you're getting at, and I'm I'm trying to kind of place this into a gospel context for our own conversation. So does differentiation then, in order to differentiate within the gospel, it sounds to me like you have to get to a place where you've had your own experience with God. You've somehow, you don't need to be told what God is because you've experienced it yourself. You don't need then to have the right answers for everybody else because you've experienced the right answers yourself. Am am I kind of following Uh, what you're saying?
2: Yeah, I I think there's something to that. I think what it is also is that I dare to say how I feel or what I don't feel or what I do believe is true and what I don't believe is true, not because I think I've got the answers and that I've got it all right, but because i'm being sincere in my intentions to discover what is true
0: and okay, that I, I trust
2: my sincerity in that endeavor and i trust my goodness in that endeavor i mean i know for myself i was you know i was a questioner from an early age and it distressed me somewhat be- and it certainly distressed some of my primary and young women's teachers uh, that I was a questioner. <laughs> and, but, but, you know, I, wasn't, I was definitely a good girl. You know, I was. I really was compliant to everything that was asked of me. But I was, a, I was a sincere questioner. I really was struggling to figure out what was true and what I really felt was right. And, you know, I went through a period where I just went into pure compliance and just shut my questions down because I was too afraid of the disapproval That I would receive if I continued to let myself have questions at a certain point, you know, my own integrity started to push on me, which was that I couldn't I felt like I was lying to myself too much to just force myself into belief in certain things. And so I remember praying to God and really asking permission. Can I allow myself to really explore what I feel and still be okay with you. (laughs) And I really felt clarity that God was more interested in my sincere intent and efforts to discover truth than my compliance in a kind of mindless, uh, approval-seeking way around any particular doctrine or um, teaching. And so it really allowed me to give you know to feel like where when I stand before God what I want to know is that I was sincere and had integrity and of course I don't have perfect integrity but that's what I'm often pushing myself towards to hold that I'm really being honest with myself brutally honest with myself around what I claim and what I disclaim so that's I think the struggle of differentiation because it doesn't always meet with approval. And, you know, even talking about issues of sexuality, I really like people to like me. You know, sometimes it's hard to talk about things that other people disagree with for me and to know that I get their disapproval. I have to often come back and say to myself, am I really being straight with myself? What do I genuinely feel? Not that I'm right. And everyone people else are wrong, but I'm, I'm expressing my sincere perspective from an, um, an earnest intention to, to speak what I believe is true.
1: Um, Mike, I uh, haven't heard from you well. I'm guessing that uh, while, every, while the rest of us were talking a little bit, you were making some notes or whatnot. What, what's occurring to you at this point in the, in the podcast to share?
3: Well, first off, I'm really conditioned that when five women are talking, I just remain silent. So it's tough to break there. Oh, man. But, uh, but, uh, so that's a, that's
1: a, what is it, a differentiation you're yeah, not welcoming, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's
3: a conditioned response. But, uh, you know, what was interesting is uh, this idea of, you know, needing to be able to, you know, kind of have a, kind of a belief in your own self and your own relationship with God as really the one way you can anchor yourself away from, you know compliance with the group and just feel comfortable and confident or have this courageous ability to make a decision i think that's really fascinating and we see that a lot in various things that i see in the church you know, in my current calling i happen to be the elders quorum president for what seems like now a decade but you know we see all the time uh, people in the church men in particular you know doing their home teaching and of course men are notoriously hard to get out and get them out home teaching and I think one reason why you have an issue there is because, you know, home teaching has a very tight definition. You know, you have this notion of it's a priesthood visit in the home and it has to be scheduled and it has to look a certain way. And a lot, of, a lot of men, if they can't get it, if they can't get the appointment, uh, you know, cut from the cloth that we've told it needs to look like, they don't try. And there's this reluctance to break away from that norm and do something that's more aligned with the spirit of the law, such as service or something maybe outside the realm. So, uh, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting dialogue. That was an example that made me think of, yeah. you know, I wish we were more able to break away from this notion of complying with how we think it should be, so we could really live up to this spirit of the law and, and serve each other. And, and that, that issue of, of people trying to comply with the law, of course, was parodied in movies. You know, like the movie "The RM" with the a guy trying to like cram in his home teaching visit. You know, <laughs> the thir- the nth hour of the of the month. You know, and that's obviously something we need yeah, to to get away from. And I think some of Jennifer's comments kind of provide a path to do that.
1: Good, good. Well, um, thanks. Did you have anything else for? I,
3: yeah, stairs? for now. Yep. Okay,
1: great. Um, okay, here's what I want to go. Uh, you guys, do you mind for a second that we talk? I know Jennifer, in, in your notes to us, you talked about the fear-based, the external approval-based type uh, obedience was was a childlike thing, and yet we have this whole gospel message, which is, become like a child. You know, and certainly there are those wonderful qualities of children that are, you know, fun and uninhibited and loving and naturally forgiving. You know, hey, yeah, yeah, I forgot about it already and I'm on my merry way again. And there's these beautiful, beautiful things about children. And then we have this amazing scripture that gets constantly talked about in, uh, you know, it's probably one of the five or ten most quoted scriptures. The natural man is an enemy to a God and will be. From the beginning of time, this is Messiah 3.19. Unless he does what? Unless he becomes like a child, um, which is submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord sees fit to inflict upon him, even as a child doth submit to his father. So the question is what is the difference between the child that we're to become and that Messiah 3.19 says and a true child? And one of the huge things. A child, chronologically, has it's, it's such a power imbalance. They have to submit to their parents. They have to submit to adults because they don't have power. Because this is this is this thing. And so that is not the submission. <laughs> that Messiah is calling us to or King Benjamin is calling us to in this one um, and I, I just can't resist because tomorrow's Halloween uh, we're recording this the day before Halloween we'll release it the day after but uh, I don't know if you know a lot of the si- social dynamic dynamics of Halloween are quite interesting in in their origins I mean there, there's these ideas that it's obviously origin you're trying to appease the spirits but trick or treating sort of fits in the classification of role reversal rituals I don't know if any of you have mm-hmm. ever heard of this material so for instance uh, a lot of societies will have that they'll recognize that there are power imbalances and whatnot, and so one day a year or a certain a period of the year, roles are reversed, and so for instance, all the villagers could come and tell the king what a jerky is, or, or make fun of him, or you know, or, or that that's what the court jester sort of is doing. Uh-huh. He's making fun and he's relieving the pressure and, and and all sorts of things like that. Well, in this in this case, children are the least powerful in the world, and yet what is it that they get to do? And especially this is the older days, you know, back when you really could demand a treat or I am going to play a trick. I've got a carton right. of eggs right here, you know, and sort of there's this one day a year that children have the permission and so back then it wasn't Ewoks and princesses and frog you know, Kermit, the frogs that people dress up with. They aligned themselves with the scariest. It was the ghosts. It was the witches. It's the vampires. It's the werewolves. It's the highway robbermen. It's the pirates, you know, not the cute pirates. <laughs> these, were, these were the scary people because they, they needed that power you know uh, to demand the treat versus uh, or i'll play the trick on you and so like that so we have this uh, this kind of just again shows us that deep in our psychology we sort of recognize there there's this imbalance of power so so the kind of submitting to god that messiah is calling us for here and i don't think we ever emphasize this it's the it's the submission of a, an adult It's the submission of somebody who has their power, who has, you know, worked through this relationship with God, where they have actually heard God's will and they have aligned themselves and their obedience is purely... It's what James Fowler is talking about in stage six. It is, I am willing to let the divine will flow through me. It is to be, I will be the hands of God. I will be the hands that do this. And sometimes he'll even admit that it's going to take you into places that will stretch you. It might even get you killed, you know, the radical embodiment of this will of God. And I I just think that we, we shortchange ourselves if we forget that there's a childlikeness that, yeah, we want to honor but there's a great Oliver Wendell Holmes quote that says, I wouldn't give a fig for the simplicity on this side of complexity, but for the simplicity on that side of complexity, I would give everything in the world. Mm. And mm. that's what we need to recognize. Really? And I think wow. that's the maturing path. And that's where Messiah 319 sits well with me, where it doesn't sit well with me. If it's just, I am a child of God and I've never advanced beyond primary level understanding mm. of that. Right. when really, the call is for us to be the bride. You know, uh, Phil McLemore gave a great, or wrote a great piece in Sunstone a few issues ago where he talked about different stages, different models. And childhood is one, but then there's the steward relationship with God where you're a steward of God's kingdom. And this is the the highly functioning church leader who's internalized the principles and whatnot and, and, and is able to self direct. But then there's the disciple. That's another thing we're called to. And that's where you sort of enter into a way or, you know, the path of the disciple. I'm actually trying to trod the path path. Then you get to, he has the other friend, he has the stage called the friend. This is where you and your relationship with God is more of a mutual sharing, a, a willingness to know each other, to be known by God, to open up your house like C.S. Lewis talks about and say, come on in and re-plumb my pipes and clean out my closets, God, and, and know all of me. But you, but there's this mutual love and, and affection that you've developed. And then finally, the 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 highest level at least Phil as he named it is the beloved stage where again you're the bride you're you're entering with God and you're you're willing to partake the fullness of God and so these things we can't forget when we talk about an honor ch- childlikeness yeah we we want to honor that but we <laughs> it looks a lot different <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. for the mature person so those are things I didn't want to make I wanted to make sure that we don't forget.
3: Hey, Dan, real fast, I think that's a great point. In fact, uh, I think that uh, Scripture in Mosiah, you know, which is often quoted and it's often, you know, uh, spoken of in terms of we need to be actual, like, literal children, and clearly that's not what it means. It need, you know, we, we need to be teachable, meek, and we also need to, in my view, put away some of our preconceived notions so we can be open to the way. And what's interesting about members of the Church who were born and raised in the Church often we begin to develop testimonies, if you will, of the mechanics of the gospel. You know, checking off the list, uh, complying with these lower levels of, of of the law. But I think what that scripture, Mosiah, invites us to do is to put aside a lot of our preconceived notions that have been conceived by virtue of our development, you know, life to date, and then be open to these broader possibilities of what the higher law really could mean for us. So, uh, you know, being being more uh, an instrument through which. Uh, the spirit in our vernacular, or you know, the the Dao the and other vernaculars, can flow through us so that we can begin to really begin to operate at that higher level. So that that is an interesting way to approach it, and I think uh, the way you outlined it's actually pretty fascinating.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know the theories uh, well that you're talking about, Dan, but I, you know, in terms of the notion of differentiation, you know, the the that one of when someone is. Enmeshed or at low levels of differentiation, there is this feeling of competition between a sense of being able to belong to ourselves versus belong to someone else, meaning the pulls of the relationships we're in seem to compete with our ability to be who we are and our own autonomy. And so... But as we develop in our capacity for differentiation, the paradox is that we actually, the more we become grounded in ourselves, the more we know ourselves, have wisdom within ourselves, The actually the more willing and able we are to submit, to turn ourselves over, to be open, to be, um, what's the word, to... Um, to surrender essentially exactly. within our Good. within our relationships because there isn't a loss of self in the surrender. The right. surrender is an expression of oneself at the same time that you're submitting to God or to goodness or to your spouse. So, and I don't mean that in the submitting to your spouse in the way we've talked to women about it, but right. <laughs> right. so, right. um, uh, yeah, so I think that's very interesting.
0: Well, and we see that in mosaic when King Benjamin, after he gives a speech, and, and his people say, "We have lost our disposition to do evil," they mm-hmm. literally lost that desire. They became one with the word. W- with the word, they literally elevated themselves to that point where they lost that disposition. Uh, mm. And so I think that whole section of Mosiah, starting right there from Mosiah three nineteen to be like a child, to the time when uh, the people lose their disposition, really illustrates that that progression.
3: Mm. Which begs the question then: How do we make sure that ourselves and those around us, those we can influence, really can be elevated to that kind of higher level of being versus? What we're somewhat pointing out on this podcast is that there is this overemphasis on this letter of the law.
2: So I have a thought about that. I think, you know, that that often at church we teach this idea, if you comply to kind of all the lower laws, it will inherently bring you into spirituality and I guess I would agree on some level the thing I like about all the lower laws it is that in some ways they make you safer I'm very grateful that I was taught to not drink alcohol and to not have sex and because it it kept me from a lot of I think toxic or damaging consequences and so in a sense it allowed me or prepared me to have deeper experiences because I lived by them but it what I see as often as we're all talking about is people get sort of stuck in that compliance and stuck in those outward expressions and nothing's richer or deeper happens. And, and I think, and I, you know, this is just from my own experience, but I really think at the core of our spiritual movement is really believing and knowing that we matter profoundly to our parents in heaven, that we are connected to them in a way that we don't have to earn that we don't have to prove, because it really gives us a freedom to let ourselves be known to God to know ourselves and to explore what it is that we're about and it, you know allows the richness of that relationship to emerge and to be less authority focused and more relationship with god focused
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Uh, Before Mike jumped in, the one thing I wanted to say, Chelsea, and I love your point about King Benjamin's people and their desire. And I've had those feelings, you know, we have these amazing spiritual experiences and you know, at the end of those experiences, I, I have no more disposition to do evil. I love everybody, but mm-hmm. slowly it fades. And yeah. so we need to cut ourselves some, some slack. And that's why when we talked in our ritual, the the podcast we did on a ritual, that's mm-hmm. why it's so important to put ourselves in a position as many times as we can where we're deliberately trying to step into that threshold, that little bit of out of space and time thing so we might experience those kinds of things again. So I just wanted to say, King Benjamin's people, yeah, Yes, I'm, absolute true expression. But remember Alma later, as he's talking to people, he's saying, have you been born of God? And if so, do you still feel it? Right. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. you have right. to be that's born. Of it? Yeah, so we just right. need to make sure that we're cutting ourselves some slack because, oh, I did have God speak to me and my heart was changed. And dang it, I failed again. I and mean, that's part of the process <laughs> right. uh, for sure. Absolutely. absolutely. So cool. And, um, and it
0: goes back to what Jennifer said about realizing that we're valuable in God's, and our parents' eyes, no matter what, or like the lesson that the kids got earlier, that the salt is not ruined when some pepper gets sprinkled in, that mm-hmm. our worth is intrinsic and valuable and that we can continue to progress. Uh, that, the whole message of the gospel in that regard is so beautiful and so empowering and so encouraging. I just, I love that.
1: I know, I want to shout it, yeah, especially in church when it's like, when it's going the other direction. So really, if you guys don't mind, let's head there. Let's head to strategies. Let's head to the, that acknowledging that frustration that some people have who feel like they're ready to take more steps and, and to be more self-directed and would love to share that in the gospel community. And they're feeling shut down. They're feeling like it's unsafe to do so. How is it as somebody who is working in this, these, these less external, more internally directed sort of things, how do you guys survive church meetings? How do you share in a certain ways that you maybe are elevating the conversation to, to make a little more room for yourself? I think that's an important thing for a lot of our podcast listeners that come here hoping for strategies. <laughs> so, so how do you be wow. spiritual mature in the current culture and with the current rhetoric?
3: Well, just to maybe jump in at first. You know, one thing that I've I've tried to focus on, which I think has really helped me over the last uh, couple of years, is as you know, I've continued to evolve in life and in the church, is to really try to focus on what the outcome or the output, better said, of any given activity that I do in the church needs to be. So I'll give you a quick story. You know, when I served a mission in Argentina, I was called to the Traleo Argentina mission, and they weren't teaching very many discussions when I was called there. And it was, one reason was because most missionaries were going through the motions of teaching discussions the way they used to. You know, there were six discussions. You needed an appointment. You had to show up at 7 p.m. at the uh, prescribed time and have the family gathered around. And if you didn't have that situation, you didn't teach. And then we had Elder Mickelson come down for a conference, and he taught us very powerfully to break away from that norm and, and not be focused on the mechanics of a discussion, but rather to uh, to preach the gospel as with the tr- you know the voice of a trumpet, and encourage us to break away from this idea that you had to be in a home and have an appointment with the family gathered around, but uh, to get back to the basics of preaching on the street corner, because the the, the the concept, the output we're looking for was to was to teach the gospel, not to have a specific number of discussions. And we began to do that, and the number of discussions given, and therefore baptisms, went up dramatically. And that's always been a powerful lesson to me to, to let, not focus on the mechanics of how it's been described, but focus on the outcome. And then, to borrow Jennifer's uh, vernacular, have some courage in knowing that the the output you're generating aligns with the spirit of the law. And even if it's not Precisely how it was prescribed to you in primary, be okay with that because now you know, as Paul says, you, you know when you when you're an adult you you put away those childish things, so I think there's a combination of courage and then focus on what the output needs to be. so I think my home teaching example earlier is also so not not be so worried about quote the priesthood hit visit in the home but to serve and uplift that family. And, and be aware of their needs at any given time in the month as opposed to the formality of trying to align a, an appointment with your, your companion, that family, which is kind of logistically complicated, for example. And the list goes on. So I think that, for me, has been really, really helpful.
1: Cool. Um, and I can see that be very easily taught in leadership meetings and in planning and whatnot. What about you guys just surviving it without tearing your hair out? <laughs> <laughs> or does the fact that you're spiritually mature lead you to less temptation, or less the felt need to tear your hair out? How do you how do you how do you feel like you can still get something from church when you feel like you're a little bit alone on the island? I, I, I have a few
2: thoughts. I think um you know, I went through a period as part of my own process of differentiation, which I'm still working on for sure. But, you know, where I felt uh, some disillusionment, some anger um, I found what I experienced is people sort of um, uh tendency to constantly sort of reinforce what was acceptable and kind of give the right answers to be really hard for me, and partly because. I felt this real fear that if I say where I really am or how I really feel, this group that matters profoundly to me will no longer include me. They won't accept me. And that's so painful for me that it really got expressed as anger that didn't really get openly expressed. It just was more internalized within me. Um, I think my own process was around coming into deeper and deeper self acceptance around my divergence and my own perspectives at the same time that I knew that this is where I wanted to be. This is where I wanted to serve. This is my group. This is my people. I'm not going to church so much to have every thought and perspective I have validated. And I am coming to church because this is where I want to love, and this is where I want to be. And so, you know, I've found ways for myself. You know, I, I teach the marriage and family relations class in my ward. I actually went in and asked my bishop if I could have that calling because I knew that I could express myself there and be helpful to the group there. And uh, he was willing to give it to me. I also talked openly with my bishop about some of the things that I struggled with, and and found, you know, I guess I would say. I've I've sort of shared with some, some of the things that I, my divergences, and have felt much more acceptance than I had expected. I also have found ways to really serve the group in ways that are really congruent with who I am and how I feel and have allowed me to really feel valued within the group. So I think in some ways it's been a a, a willingness or a courage to talk about what I really feel is right, the things I tend to disagree with, but not in an arrogant, I know I'm right and you're wrong way, but more this is what my experience has taught me. And maybe tolerating some of the discomfort it might generate, but knowing that I'm doing it out of an expression of love and of integrity, not as a way to take anybody down. So I don't know if that's clear um, enough, but that's my, been my journey.
1: Wonderful. And it's hard to go wrong when somebody says, This is my experience. Yes. You know, because okay. you're not claiming it for everybody. You're just saying, Here's at least right. what occurred to me yeah. <laughs> at this moment based upon you know, an emphasis I've been pondering lately or that yes. my life and, my life journey has taught me. Yeah. Go ahead. And and
2: I've always been really surprised by how much people are thankful for that.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that yeah. When,
2: yeah. when you're saying this is how I feel, this has been my experience, it hasn't been as straightforward for me as it has been for others. And and people will often come up and say to me afterwards, Thank you so much for saying that. That is my experience also. And you know, that strengthens the group, I think.
1: Very good. Good. Chelsea, anything that jumps out of your mind? Yeah, for
0: sure. I I can relate to quite a few of the things that Jennifer has said. I found in my own experience that when I've uh, found the courage to share a a varying experience or or shared a story that maybe is a little contrary to the way we're being taught, it seems to be kind of like the floodgates open. and, And there are lots of people who have similar Stories to share. There will be people afterwards who will come up and say, Yeah, I agree. That was my thought as well. I just didn't share it. You know, we, I think we tend to do that. We want to conform. We want to be part of the group. We don't want to be different. Yep. But we are. We all are different. So I, I found um, that being a way that I can find joy in going to church is finding courage every now and again to share my experience when it's different. I've also found um, that by having my own experiences with God, developing my own spirituality and my own relationship with the divine has given me a sense of confidence in my beliefs Mm -hmm. that I didn't have previously. And when you have your own experiences, when you have your own revelation, when you have firsthand knowledge of how God speaks to you, I think there is a confidence that comes um, when you're sitting in a class and you're told it has to be a certain way. I I feel that as I progress in the gospel and I gain my own experiences, I release more and more of the dogma that I subscribed to growing up before I had my own experiences. And so I can't emphasize enough um, to others and to my children that for me, finding my own sacred experiences with God has given me a peace, uh, an internal peace that no church lesson has ever been able to give me about how things are, about how God is etc., etc. And in having those own personal experiences, I found that um, connecting with people in the church who are in leadership positions, who I see have um, a strong influence, and being able to connect with them and share elements of truth with them Is also empowering to me. It makes me feel like I somehow benefit or I'm helping along my community. You know, Jennifer talked about asking to teach the the marital and family relations group, and that was a way for her to feel like she was serving the community. I, I feel like I've had a lot of really beautiful insights in the temple, very pro woman, pro family, pro husband wife messages in the temple. And a lot of people, and particularly women that I've met, have not had that experience. I found it extremely validating to be able to share and kind of testify and and express some of the things I've learned. That's a way that I feel like I'm helping and moving and, you know, encouraging my community. Um, And so, you know, those are ways that Oh, I, I tolerate, to use your words, going well, and sometimes well, hearing I, the thrust
1: rigid messages. Exactly. And at first it may feel like, oh, how do I tolerate it? But I, I can share my own experience of, you know, those weeks and the frustrations, still obviously still being here, but but the frequency is less and less as I've, like you say, I've, di- I've di- 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 yeah, dove in, in di- d- dived in. I- What's the word? <laughs> as, as I'm fed, you know, I guess by, by the deeper experiences that you're talking about and my own confidence and things. A couple of just things, I know I've shared them in the podcast where John interviewed me and things like that too. Honoring the fact that everybody's on a journey and their journey is not the same as mm-hmm. my journey. Definitely. And that especially knowing that some of the things that drive me the most crazy are things about me. That I am not yet fully comfortable with, and I'm rejecting those parts of me, and i sometimes I'm projecting it and saying it's them, but it's you know the cockiness the know it allness all that stuff that makes me crazy now it's because guess what i still I'm still working through <laughs> those pieces of my own my own self uh there, so recognize that everybody's in there, and again, especially as jealousy you say you develop relationships and it makes it so different for me it's been knowing people truly in their own life story. And instead of like, how can you be so dense? It's like, how are you even here? <laughs> how have you survived these these things that you've been through? You know, the, the accomplishment of being a functioning person in society and still wanting to love and give and share after some of the things that people have gone through that I haven't had to go through has just been very enlightening. And I try to at least cut the slack that there's a possibility of some real dysfunction that's you know kind of led them to maybe be really strident or or some Mm -hmm. of the other areas that that kind of drive me crazy but uh, those couple things
3: yeah please you know one thing that strikes me in this conversation that it is interesting that the more that each of us as members of the church take that courage to break away from the conformity and kind of be confident in what our life's journey has taught us then all of a sudden, church becomes all the more richer because there's mm-hmm. these divergent experiences being shared, as opposed to what many people feel like is they go into a lesson; it's everybody seems to be cut from the same cloth, and they don't feel like they fit in. You know, in fact, even today we are in uh, gospel doctrine, and there was a lesson given about families. You know, and it, it mean them needing to look a certain way, and you can see the look on the faces of those people who didn't necessarily meet that criteria perfectly, that they were feeling very left out. But if the teacher or even the class members had the courage to have said, well, here's a divergent perspective that 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 I've taken that's enriched my life or here's my perspective that happens to be different, then all of a sudden the floodgates suddenly open and there's a degree of comfort for other people to share those experiences. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us have had those experiences in some wonderful classes where – people do have the courage to speak up and then suddenly it's rich. So as a takeaway from perhaps this podcast would be just that, if we all have that courage, boy, church would then not only be bearable, it might just be mm. enjoyable.
2: Right. And I was, uh, you know, this is a piece that we didn't explore much in the podcast that I was thinking about a bit, but when uh, we touched on perhaps, but I was you know, talking to a friend a couple of days ago um, about you know when faithful members and devout members really disagree with things that are considered orthodox or true you know i was just kind of in the conversation with him about is it okay to bring it up is it okay to talk about it and it was interesting because his position as a you know card carrying mormon as you said michael he said you know i not only is it okay it is our obligation as as members of the body of christ it is the way that we push ourselves forward. It's the way we push the group to evolve and to become more responsive to the needs of the group is that we owe it to the group to speak what our genuine feelings are, not, you know, based in a desire to coerce or demean or feel better than anyone else, you know, which... All of us can do in the name of authenticity, which is, is, Mm -hmm. you know, much more complex than that. Mm -hmm. But really, as an authentic expression of this is where I genuinely am in my experience and my search for truth, that that's our obligation as members of our wards and as of the church.
1: I love that. I, I do that. too, and uh, let me just add that I'm guessing it's also a skill <laughs> that needs mm-hmm. to be developed, and you know you're going to get better at it and better at it as you as you take those baby steps, and don't cut your you know again cut yourself some slack that you're not as articulate as somebody who's. You know, I've been at that comfort level for 15 years. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're when you're first doing it, so I, at least I always want to throw in that don't expect to be. Uh, this isn't easy stuff. This is a, this right. is advanced discipleship kind of stuff to, mm-hmm. to really do it, and and that's why it is so much easier to stay at the level of the externals and the measurables, and you know the yeah. easy, those. And, and yet, the other measure, the the real measurement's going to count is is you know all in your heart and with between what god's sharing with you and you're sharing with god mm-hmm. um one final thought on a strategy i i think it does help and and it's, a couple of you guys have brought up at least echoes of this just knowing how institutions work Even the one and only true church, you know, obviously I'm not a fan of that phrase and things like that. But, you know, the church says it's this and it's the perfect organization. No, it's an organization. (laughs) Own (laughs) that. Learn about how organizations always, there's always a tension between the individual and the group needs. And just expect that. Don't let it throw you... um, don't let mm-hmm. it, uh, you know, oh, the, I can't in integrity stay in this church because it claims right. this. And yet here's the abuses that I'm getting or, if, you know, people are ostracizing me or something because I'm weird. Right. <laughs> anyway, Don't, anyway, right. so, yeah, just know all, all those things um, kind of helped to me. Um, yeah. Thank you, you guys. Uh, has there been anything on anybody's, uh, you know, writing tablet or notes that they didn't get to share tonight that they had really come in wanting to, to emphasize?
0: The the only thing that I would add to that um, and that I kind of had in my notes it was exactly what you just hit on, Dan, which is that the institution and the church is uh, a signpost towards greater relationship with God, that when we get caught up in the the rules, the standards, the expectations, the recommendations, that's just us failing to see that all of those things are merely a signpost for something deeper, and Christ and a relationship with God are, and eternal life are those things that are deeper, and we're all going to interpret them in different ways, and that's as it should be. Um, and so I, I, think you, I think you said that beautifully in, in your last piece.
3: Jennifer or Mike? Just one thing, I'd like to just uh, kind of cap on what you said, Dan. This idea that you know, all of us can take heart in the fact that the church has certainly evolved over time. And since we do declare, perhaps uh, a little bit erroneously, that this is the one and only living and true church, but I do like the word living because it certainly means we can yeah. change again. And mm-hmm. the way it is today may not be the way it is in 10 years, so our presence. You know, being vocal and taking that courage uh, might indeed just be the change that the church needs worldwide.
1: Awesome, and yeah, one of my little phrases is: Has the restoration happened, or is the restoration ongoing? You know, yeah, and and true. are we are we part of that? Are we the ones, like Beatrice Robert says, who take the germ truths that Joseph Smith taught that you know are in the gospel and give them more forceful expression? We, we you know we're the ones who are. are, are charged with that and I don't know I kind of like having a job to do in the church (laughs) you know and and if that's my gifts that's great it's not like it means that my only my only sense of myself is I'm only in here in order to change the church no it's just my natural gifts maybe lead towards this sort of uh, exhortation and pastoring and you know let's uh, let's reconsider fresh in a in a non-threatening way hopefully that's at least what I'm trying to develop and to, to know that you know, there's a model that says, you know, I am part of this living tradition. So yeah. I love I love that you gave us that, Mike. Thank you.
2: And I just I think that I just love what you're all saying. And I think that there's a deeper democratization actually happening in the church through the internet, through more conversations like these, which I would I that I think is going to be very healthy for the church as an organization and for It's progression. And I think, you know, when I do family therapy, often it's the child in that structure that has profound wisdom to share if they dare to share it. You see what I mean? That it's often, as we're talking about, that Mm – I think, Dan, you were saying you know, authentic self-expression is often hard to do at church, but be patient with yourself. I would say authentic self-expression is hard in all of our relationships
1: <laughs> there <And you> go. <laughs> yeah.
2: because it pushes those relationships to evolve, and it's a painful process, but a very important one. So I do really like this as the living church. It really is our obligation to speak what our sincere feelings and experiences are in order to push it forward
1: fantastic hey hey under two hours, okay. guys. I Got it. <laughs> we, we weren't sure. Wow. We, we had written so much to each other in the last 24 <laughs> hours. Uh, we weren't sure what we'd get to, but I'm really excited. We even shared things that we hadn't uh, talked about in, in advance. So, thank well, you, FIFES, for having wonderful conversations <laughs> and, and answering your phone on a Saturday morning and and letting us uh, do this one this week. Uh, the one that we are that we were going to do this week is now going to be pushed off for two weeks, and hopefully the mm. p- the scheduling will work out. for the people better than it was but this has been fantastic this is actually dovetailed a little bit with uh with we're, we'll we'll take some of this and we'll jump off it in a couple of weeks when we talk about integrity jennifer right. you talked about that as a and as an important thing that we work out of our, our integrity and we're going to take on that question soon of how do we with our own integrity stay within the church if that's what we're called to do how is mm. it that with integrity we Aren't just looking. In fact, Jennifer, something that you shared in in our pre conversation was using it as an excuse. Oh, I no longer believe that. And then we sometimes make that an excuse to not. Um, mm-hmm. not push ourselves to keep growing you know mm-hmm. so how, how, how is it that integrity truly works when we're rejecting as well as when we're accepting so right. those are some of the issues that we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks uh-huh. uh, next week just to let you guys know we're going to do messages about fatherhood manhood mm-hmm. masculinity we're going to kind of uh, right. do, do a little bit of uh, uh, <laughs> a cha- changeover from the motherhood one that we had that was so, so I 've got some great guys with different perspectives on uh, what it means to be a man and what they're hearing in the church and I don't I don't know if you guys heard last week's podcast, for those of you who haven't heard it, there was something fascinating in there as we talked from the young single adult uh, perspective. And Kayla, our, one of our guests, just talks about how she hears so many negative messages about men. In mm. the church, that she as a single person is going. Why would I want to marry one of those? Guys? <laughs> the yeah. the emphasis on, the emphasis I mean, on, on porn. It's yeah. Like, oh, all must men must yeah. be porn addicts. You know, and also, you know, if, and the message is of modesty. She's saying if they can't control themselves, so they all want sex. And sure. Really, who I want to unite myself with? And ah. it was fascinating. So I'm, we're going to play with all those things uh, That's next a great week. Topic. Then I say the integrity in a couple of weeks from that, and so and we're going to do the second coming. One of these days, and messages wow. about the second coming, and we're also going to do Satan and the, the wow. teachings about Satan. So, uh, Mormon Matters is on—it's on a roll, you guys. And thank you it's for all roll. of you, yeah, all of you who do uh, support financially. It means a, a ton. This—it's a labor of love, but it is a piece of my family's <laughs> livelihood, and I've appreciate some people have been so generous just in the last few weeks I, I'm like overwhelmed with with love but anything that anybody does in that way with a vote with the wallet is wonderfully appreciated but most of all thank you for the conversation thank you for the things that you do on the blog you three have been terrific please come and visit and let's have a great continuing conversation on the Mormon matters blog if you don't mind That's right so, all right thanks good night thank
0: you for listening if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in our show notes below to learn more about where you can find Dr. Fife's website, her online courses, information about her upcoming events, information about her free Facebook group, and more. Thank you for being here.